episode 7 of the Fountain Court podcast. I'm Gillian Hughes, a barrister at Fountain Court. Recently, I was lucky enough to interview our head of chambers and one of the preeminent silks at the London Bar, Bankin Fanky QC. Bankin's practice spans a range of areas, including commercial litigation, banking, regulatory work and arbitration. He is ranked for his work in various areas by the legal directories, and is considered the leading expert at the bar on the law of privilege. He has also been listed by the Sunday Times as one of the most influential people in the country. During our discussion, Bankin spoke about why he chose to come to Fountain Court as a pupil, and what advice he would give to those considering a career as a barrister. We also hear about Bankin's chastening first time in court, the individuals who have influenced his career, and his love of fine wine and how he was once within hours of cross-examining Michael Jackson. In this honest discussion, Bankham touches on the most challenging periods of his career, but also on some of the highlights so far, and how his role has developed since taking on the mantle of Head of Chambers. We hope you enjoy the episode. Today, I'm joined by our Head of Chambers, Bankin Fanky QC. Bankin, thank you very much for joining me today. I wondered if we could begin by reflecting on your journey to the bar. At what point did you decide you wanted to become a barrister and why? Going back into the mist of time, but um, I read history at university and I was in my final year and I was all set up to do a doctorate in history. And at the Really, the 11th hour, I had a British Academy scholarship and uh, for funding all set up. And at the 11th hour, I had a, a long conversation with my tutor, um, someone called Oswin Murray, who was the fellow in ancient history at Balliol. And he advised me that he wasn't sure that I would actually enjoy doing a history doctorate and that maybe the bar would be a better option, which, to be honest, I hadn't considered at all. But his view was that it was just as intellectual as academia, but better remunerated, and that I'd enjoy the structure of the bar and the way it functioned, and that some of his um, pupils who had gone on to the bar, who had had an academic bent, had really enjoyed it and found it more fulfilling than what can quite often be an isolating um, career in academia. So it was a really a last-minute decision taken on what turned out to be, I like to think, good advice. Yes, that sounds like you had a, a good tutor to help you. Do you remember what it was that led you to become interested in a career at the commercial bar in particular? Well, I didn't have any access to funding, so qualifying for the bar, not having done a law degree in particular, was quite expensive. So I needed to start earning money relatively quickly. Against that background, I decided I was probably better off going to the civil bar rather than the criminal bar. And I applied to a range of sets. Um, and at the end of the day, I had a few offers, lucky enough to have a few offers. At the end of the day, I decided on accepting the offer from the set I'd liked the most um, during the interview process which was found in court because the people had been so nice um, in the interview process which that could be quite misleading but actually um, it turned out to be a fairly accurate reflection of chambers 
Chambers hadn't just put up the most convivial members to do the interviewing. So that's really how I decided to come to Fountain Court. In terms of the commercial buyer, apply to a range of chambers. I didn't want to specialise in shipping and insurance, um, so I didn't apply to perhaps the more mainstream in those days commercial sets which did hardcore shipping and insurance. And I wanted a slightly more generalist set. So I think I was choosing between what is now Blackstone Chambers um, and Fountain Court um, were the two offers I was the most interested in at the end of the day. What would you say now if you were talking to somebody who was trying to work out if a, a life at the bar was for them? I think you should try and experience the lifestyle. It's hard, obviously, during lockdown, but as and when the world returns to normal. Get some experience of what life at the bar is like, whether it's through a mini pupillage or just spending some time in in chambers and see if it suits you. I think you'd have to have an appetite for uncertainty in your life to be suited to, to the bar. It's definitely not a nine-to-five job. You have to have a capacity for sheer hard work and a certain degree of stamina, I think, to, to thrive at the bar. But if you've got those attributes, I think it can be a tremendously rewarding uh, career. It has intellectual stimulus. Uh, What I like is the turnover of cases. Obviously, there are some long cases which have their own um, benefits, but also it has a turnover of work. So it's always interesting opening a new file and learning about a new case and exploring a new set of facts and a new set of legal problems. And that turnover, I think, it's hard to find in any other job or career. So I think I would say explore whether you think the lifestyle suits you. And I think, as I say, you'd have to have an appetite for uncertainty in your life and to thrive on uh, on that. I think you, have, you don't need quite the appetite for risk that you would have had to have had when I started at the bar. There's much more funding available now in terms of scholarships from the inns and other sources And if you are lucky enough to get into a good set, there's much more financial security than there used to be because the work is a little bit more predictable. You still have to make your own way and you have to be lucky sometimes to get the right opportunities. But there's less financial and other risk involved with the career at the bar than there used to be. I'm not saying there isn't any, but there's less than there was. I agree with all of that. Certainly my experience so far is that the variation keeps the job being very fun, but it certainly can be very unpredictable at times too. An exciting moment for any advocate is their first time on their feet addressing a judge. Could you tell us about your first time in court? Yeah, it was a disaster. Um, so I, um, in those days, Fountain Court used to have a, an exchange scheme. We didn't do any work, as I don't think you did either, Gillian, in your second six months um, on your on your on your feet. But to get people advocacy experience, we used to have an exchange scheme with a criminal set of chambers, which was then the chambers of Michael Hill QC, and uh, we used to spend three to six months at a criminal set, and their new tenants would come in the opposite direction to Fountain Court. And so I think my first time on my feet was a plea and mitigation in a magistrate's court. And I was waxing lyrical about how my client was a reformed character and deserved a lenient sentence, etc., etc. And there was a kerfuffle at the back of the court, and my client had done a runner pursued by two security guards 
which displayed, I think, a great deal of confidence in the advocacy that was being performed on his behalf. So that was my first experience on my feet, and it was quite chastening. (laughs) Indeed. Looking back over your time at the bar, is there a particular individual who has had a significant influence on your career? I suppose my first pupil master, more than any other single individual, it was someone called Trevor Phillipson, who sadly died a few years ago. And he was the most stylish, polished advocate I've ever seen. But what he taught me was that you don't become a stylish or polished advocate um, by just standing up in court. The amount of preparation that Trevor used to do before his cases was phenomenal. I remember as a pupil being in chambers preparing a, a difficult arbitration with him on New Year's Day in 1989. So all his class as an advocate was underpinned by knowing his case backwards and really, really thorough preparation. And uh, he's always been, he's always stood as a, as a role model for me. Uh, also in the way he lived his life. So he used to work tremendously hard, but he also had, he knew how to enjoy himself. So I think my taste for nice restaurants and fine wine probably came if came from anyone it came from from uh, an, an all-round education from from Trevor so I would say Trevor who was my first people master and then Michael Brindle was my second people master one of my predecessors head of chambers and I think Michael was also a really classy advocate and I think what Michael taught me was not just thoroughness of preparation, but efficiency. Michael had a tremendous capacity for, um, still does have a tremendous capacity for hard work, but in a really efficient way, cutting out extraneous matters and really focusing very hard on what he needed to do at any particular moment in time. And the way he used to prepare for court and cross-examination and so on was really thorough and polished. And so I learned a lot from him too. So Trevor and Michael are the two biggest influences I think on on my career and luckily from a very early stage. They both sound like very good role models. I'm pleased to say that when I did my pupillage at Fountain Court I also had people supervisors from whom I learned similar skills. What has been your most memorable case? Well I suppose the longest running case I've been involved in which was the Three Rivers litigation where I acted for Um, the Bank of England, which was being sued by the liquidators of BCCI over the the collapse of um, BCCI. And their primary claim was for the tort of misfeasance in public office. And I think I was brought into that case in the mid-1990s as the baby junior on the case. And by the time it finished in 2005, I'd taken silk. So it was about a decade's worth of of experience on that case. And it was the most fascinating case, but really hard, hard fought, very aggressively fought by the liquidators. I remember the the lead solicitor for the liquidators going on the Today programme at the beginning of the trial saying that um, there was something like there'll be blood on the carpet when the Bank of England's witnesses came to be cross-examined. It's a pretty punchy thing to say on Radio 4. And there was no no more satisfying moment than when the liquidators discontinued the claim after nearly two years of trial. And I remember the uh, governor of the Bank of England sitting at the back, back of the court. He must have been forewarned that this was about to happen. 
and coming over and, and hugging the Bank of England's lead counsel, Nick Stadlin. So it's quite a memorable moment. So I'd say that that was the most memorable case, not just because of its longevity, but because of um, of the points of law and the human interest in, in that case. And I think what really came across was just how bloody impressive the Bank of England was in terms of its officials um, and the way it was structured. It really is the cream of the British public um, service. And the, the two Bank of England officials who gave evidence, they just came across as not just tremendously clever, but thoroughly professional. And the idea that they had been dishonest, which was the allegation levelled against them, was shown to be utterly preposterous. So it was a real sense of vindication at the end of that um, that trial. Sounds a fascinating and all-round experience. A bit of a harder question now, but what has been the most challenging period of your career? Well, um, I suppose two periods. The first was actually during the, the Three Rivers uh, litigation, where I took silk not that long before the trial um, started. And the two QCs on the case at the time were Nick Stadlin and Mark Phillips. And they were thought to be indispensable to the trial preparation process. And so as a new silk, I was basically given most of the interlocutory hearings to handle uh, and as the lead advocate, which included um, some quite heavy hearings on uh, privilege-related issues on, on Three Rivers. And I was up against um, Gordon Pollock, used to be head of chambers at Essex Court Chambers, and probably one of the leading two or three QCs at the bar at the time, and I would say probably the best advocate I've ever seen at the bar. So that was a real baptism of fire being thrown in at the deep end against Gordon Pollock. Uh, and so that was quite a, a scary experience. But, you know, I'm still here. Um, and um, it was a good experience. And it, it's meant that since then, going to court has never been, has never been scary for me because nothing could quite compare with that experience. So I'd say that, that that was probably the most challenging part of my career just after I'd taken silk. And the second, the second period, and this is a bit personal, but if I'm to answer your question honestly, would be a period after my wife died in 2015. And obviously at the time... That was a very, very difficult time, and uh, I have four children. The oldest two were at university or about to go to university, and then I had a 16-year-old daughter and an 11-year-old son. And coping with that obviously took some time off work, and then coming back and trying to get into practice was a real challenge, but I was really very lucky in having support of friends and colleagues and also Fountain Court um, were marvellous and very supportive. We'll come on later to talk about Chambers a bit more, I think, Gillian, but I couldn't have been more more supportive that time, but it, it, obviously I needed it. And um, yeah, that was a that was a, a probably the, the other most uh, challenging period of, of my career. I'm very sorry to hear that. I'm sure there have also been a number of highlights for you. Could you tell us about some of those? Gosh, quite a lot. I've been around for a long time now, so uh, quite a few cases come to mind as highlights. Obviously, you talked about Three Rivers already. So I'm currently involved in 
a case acting for Ukraine against the Russian Federation. It's a claim by the Russian Federation on a $3 billion uh, euro bond transaction. And that's been a fascinating case. It obviously brings, with my interest in history, it brings into, into play lots of history, lots of geopolitical issues. And part of our defence is that basically Ukraine was coerced as a result of physical and economic duress to enter the um, transaction, including threats to our territorial integrity by the Russian um, Federation before the transaction was entered into. And we lost that case at first instance, and winning it in the Court of Appeal was a real highlight uh, of my career. That case has gone to the Supreme Court. We're waiting for the outcome, which I don't think will will come for some time um, because we're waiting upon another case, which I also did in the Supreme Court called Times Travel, which raises overlapping issues. Uh, so it'll be some time before we get the result. But that's that's been a highlight. What else? Winning ENRC in the Court of Appeal was a, was a big highlight. Um, and that was very satisfying because it was quite an uphill struggle. The case had been lost on most issues of fact and law at first instance. So it was a real uphill struggle doing the appeal. And so winning that in the Court of Appeal was a real unexpected and very satisfying uh, case to do. And I did a case acting for a Bahraini sheikh who was suing Michael Jackson under uh, a recording contract the two of them had entered into in Bahrain. That was a really fun case uh, to do. Very sadly, it settled the night before I was due to cross-examine Michael Jackson. And the court staff had put out something like 100 extra chairs in court for that spectacle Um, which would have been great fun. But, uh, yeah, sadly, it settled just before I got to cross-examine Michael Jackson, uh, which was a shame. And then what else? I suppose the other case I'd mention is I did a very long-running public inquiry in Trinidad, acting for the Central Bank of Trinidad and Tobago, around the collapse of a big insurance company, uh, which had been regulated by the Central Bank in Trinidad. And I really fell in love with Trinidad as a country, and Port of Spain as a city in particular. And um, the late Anthony Coleman was the chair of the inquiry and involved going backwards and forwards between London and um, Port of Spain over several years. And the report of the inquiry still hasn't been published by the Trinidad government, still awaited. But um, uh, it was a really good, fun case to do. And I made a lot of friends in, in Port of Spain, who I think will be lifelong friends but it's um, an unlikely holiday destination but it's one of my favorite cities on earth is port of spain it's not the most scenic but it's one of the most vibrant and uh, a lovely place to visit so um, does that answer your question yes indeed lots of exciting moments and you've certainly been in a range of very interesting cases raising lots of fascinating questions I'm looking forward to seeing what the Supreme Court decides in your Ukraine decision. What piece of advice would you give to yourself in the early days of your career as a junior barrister? That's interesting. I suppose the one thing I'd say is to only agree to realistic timelines. Um, I remember as a junior agreeing to unrealistic timelines and then working day and night and sometimes literally through the night to 
meet deadlines which actually were unnecessary. And most instructing solicitors and most leaders are actually pretty realistic and reasonable when it comes to deadlines for for work streams. Uh, and I think the thing to do is never to miss a deadline once you've agreed to something. But um, I would say to only agree to realistic deadlines and then, then make sure that you, you meet them. As you know, Gillian, I've always been really fair and realistic in setting deadlines for juniors. <laughs> and uh, I think that's quite important is just knowing what your other work requirements are and what's feasible. Yes, I think that's very good advice. And I, I, I can talk from experience that your deadlines are reasonable and fair. <laughs> you have to say that, really. <laughs> you began in practice in 1989, I think. Since then, what are the most significant changes that you've noticed in the legal profession? Well, on the solicitor's side, I suppose what didn't happen when I started at the bar and has happened a lot, I think more since I took Silk in 2003, has been the the sheer amount of movement amongst um, solicitors' firms. So people, um, it's not where you start out as a solicitor is not necessarily a career-defining decision. There's a lot of movement um, of individuals between firms for lots of different reasons, seeking partnership, changing specialisation, wanting to focus practices. So that's been a, a very big development seen a lot of the big firms move much more into the regulatory sphere as opposed to litigation, which has also opened up space for specialist litigation boutique practices, which has been quite an exciting development um, for the bar because it's also meant the range of instructing solicitors has expanded. So really alpha litigation practices like Quinn Emanuel have started up, which have gone from strength to strength. So that's been a big change amongst the solicitors' professionals. So some really, really good US practices have started in the city. And you know, White and Case, firms like that, which have developed really high-quality litigation practices in, in London. And again, that's been a good thing for the bar because it's expanded um, the range of, of firms from which we, we get our work. So on the solicitors' side, I suppose those are the main changes at the at the bar it's been a process of evolution rather than revolution i'd say some of the big changes that were predicted for the bar so for example in the early 1990s rights of audience for solicitors some predicted that that would be the death knell of the bar and that was just wrong i think there will always be a role for specialist advocacy practices at the, at the bar and you know Solicitors having rights of audience has seen changes in the way that legal practices are organised, but they've been quite subtle, and it certainly hasn't um, seen the demise of the bar, quite the contrary. The other big change at the bar, I suppose, is accessibility. Um, and When I started in practice, we didn't have email, we didn't do word processing, so our opinions were literally sent to a typing pool in, in chambers, so that's been a big, a big change. And I think the oral advocacy is still critical and very important, but there's obviously been a bigger focus on written um, advocacy. So the skeleton argument has become much more important in hearings than it um, used to be. That uh, They were not always required when I started at, at the bars. In some 
divisions of the court they weren't expected. And I think it was the commercial court which which led development of, of skeleton arguments being habitually required. So the focus on written advocacy is, is a big, big change I've seen over the years uh, at the bar, though, as I say, uh, oral advocacy remains critically important. That's all very interesting. You mentioned at the beginning that what struck you about Fountain Court when you came for your pupillage interview was how convivial you found its members. I'm pleased to say that when I came for my interview in 2017, I noticed the same about Fountain Court. But how has Chambers changed since you joined? I suppose the biggest change has been its sheer size. So when I joined Chambers, there were only between 30, maybe about 35 36 members, something like that. We're now nearly 90 members, which is still actually on the smaller side compared to uh, other Magic Circle sets, but obviously a big change from when I started in practice. And 40 of our members are Queen's Council. So that's been the biggest change, um, I suppose, this year scale. It also means that we're not able to be run as the type of Athenian democracy we were run as um, when I started in Chambers. And it's it's physically not possible to have Chambers meetings to decide every sizable issue. And so we've become much more structured in terms of the management of Chambers with a management committee and more committees which um, help to run Chambers. And I think we've become more efficient in the way that we are run. I mean, we have a fantastic senior clerk in Alex Taylor and a fantastic head of administration in Julie Parker. So we're very efficiently run, which in fact has to be the case given our size now. We are, you know, probably the size of a of a FTSE 250 company in terms of the size of our business. And so we have to be um, pretty well run. So I think those are the, the main changes I've seen, Gillian. Does that, does that answer your question? Yes, thank you, Bankin. You were appointed our head of chambers um, in 2018. In that role, what sort of jobs and responsibilities do you have? Well, I'd done five years as deputy head of chambers before then, so uh, it wasn't too big a change in terms of my, my role. I'd been deputy to Stephen Moriarty, who been a great head of chambers and provided great training for me as to how to run chambers by the time I stepped into the role as head of chambers in 2018. And I think what I learned most from Stephen was to know your limits as head of chambers and not to try and micromanage. Uh, and I've tried to stick to that. Alex and Julie may laugh when they hear me say that, but I genuinely do try not to micromanage. So Alex basically has left to run the clerking side. Julie runs admin very efficiently. And I, the bigger decisions will tend to come to me. And also the more personal decisions. Say, for example, decisions which are personal to individual members of chambers and which will involve, say, details of earnings, which only the head of chambers will have access to. And that kind of decision will, will tend to come to me. This past year... I've had slightly more on my plate than I was used to before coronavirus struck. And the sort of constantly shifting government guidelines uh, have meant more work and more responsibilities head of chambers than perhaps I was used to before then. So a lot of decisions about the extent to which chambers is 
populated by staff, how many people we have coming in at any one time. Decisions like that have taken a lot of time over the past year. I'm hoping that will ease as we go into 2021. But it tends to be the bigger decisions which fall on my desk rather than the day-to-day management of chambers. And we're also, as I said a moment ago, we're quite efficiently run in terms of the committee structure. So we have a management committee to which I can devolve matters, and we have a pupillage committee, uh, an admin committee, an IT and library committee. We also have an equality and diversity committee. So there are a number of committees, I shouldn't forget the marketing committee, a number of committees which do some of the heavy lifting in terms of um, the work that um, Chambers has to do. So I'm by no means left unassisted um, in the running of Chambers. Yes, I can imagine some of the decisions that you have to make uh, can't be easy. Do you have any particular aspirations for Fountain Court whilst you're head of our Chambers? I think steady as she goes would probably be my overriding concern and to leave Chambers in as good a state as I found it when I became head of Chambers to my leave it to my successor in as good a state as I found it. We're firmly embedded in the the magic circle at the bar, if you don't mind that expression. We are doing very well, uh, notwithstanding the uh, pandemic. We have ridden through that period despite some initial turbulence. Chambers is doing very well overall. We have made some modest uh, changes to practice which have been very successful. So during my time as Head of Chambers and as Deputy Head of Chambers, we've introduced a um, commercial crime team to Chambers, which has been a huge success and brought in lots of really interesting work. And that's been a, a good fit with our core commercial work. So we'll keep an eye out on uh, possible practice developments like that. But otherwise, I think my overall aspiration is is just to keep us firmly embedded in the magic circle and steady as she goes. That answers your question. Sounds very sensible to me. Thank you very much, Bankin, for sharing with us an insight into your career in Fountain Court Chambers and your role as head of our chambers. You'll know from your appearance on a previous episode of the Fountain Court podcast that we like to finish on a non-law note. We also know that you came close to doing a history doctorate. So one non-law question for you is, what period in history are you most interested in? And if possible, which historical figure would you invite round for a dinner? Gosh, okay. Well, I at university, I, I did a tremendous range of history stretching from Roman history right through to 20th century British and European history. But I suppose what I tend to read when I read history nowadays is much more modern history. And within that, my interests are pretty eclectic. Um, So to try and answer your question, I'll I'll tell you the two most interesting history books I've read in the last few years. Uh, One is a book by Robert Toombs called The English and Their History, which is a fantastic book. And it's written by someone who was not a specialist in English history. He was a professor of French history at Cambridge at the time he wrote the book. And he approached the book as a non-specialist, but it is the most brilliant survey of English history from the dawn of time to 
the 20th century, uh, 21st century, in fact. And it's so readable, um, it's unputdownable. And so that's one book that I've really enjoyed. The other book is a book by Michael Burley on the Third Reich. And it's a period about which I thought I knew a lot. But that book by Burley is a fantastic book about Nazi Germany. And reading it, you can't leave it without feeling vaguely angry and disturbed by some of the turns that a, you know, a really civilised society could take in the middle of the 20th century. Uh, it's an extraordinary achievement, that book. And he was a specialist. He is a specialist in the Third Reich. But it's a really readable book for a non-specialist too. So those are the two books that I have read, which have been, I think, the best history books I've read in recent um, years, and I'd recommend to anyone, including non-specialists in, in history. In terms of hist historical figures, can I cheat slightly? I mean, my, my children joke that my real hero is Winston Churchill, but I'm not sure how good a dinner party guest he'd be because he'd do all the talking and no listening, I guess. And I'm not sure I have enough champagne to service his needs. Um, so I'm going to cheat slightly and say Robert Toombs, who has become... So he's a historian rather than a historical figure. But since he retired from his chair at Cambridge... He's become a really perceptive and interesting commentator. He's become a journalist, in effect, but a really interesting commentator, for example, on Brexit. And he has a really rounded view of Europe, being a French historian. He's married to a French historian, and he's a very perceptive commentator, and I think he'd be a tremendous dinner party guest. So uh, that's who I'd invite uh, around to a dinner party, I think. That sounds a great dinner party. I'll, I'll um, definitely be looking up both of those books. One final question. We're all beginning to look forward to a world post-COVID and the easing of lockdown restrictions. When circumstances permit, where is next on your travel list? Well, I had a holiday booked last year showing my great foresight the holiday was um, in northern Italy, the epicentre of coronavirus in, in Europe. So that was last August holiday. And I've rerouted that holiday to this, this August. Uh, I was really looking forward to it. It was started out doing some walking with my family in the Dolomites, then some time on Lake Garda, and capped off by a couple of days in Verona, including La Traviata, my favourite opera in Verona. So I was looking forward to that. I've reorganised that for this summer, um, for this August. Whether that is going to be possible or not, and I fear the government is sending out mixed messages on whether foreign holidays are going to be possible or not. I don't know whether that's going to be possible, but um, that's what I'd like to do in an ideal world. But I suspect what's more likely um, this August is I will be holidaying in... North Cornwall, where we have a home, which is near Boscastle on the North Cornish coast. And I shouldn't really complain. It's a very lovely part of the world. So my best guess is that is where I will next be going um, on holiday. Thank you. Well, your trip to northern Italy sounds like it will be wonderful. But as you say, Cornwall is, is not a bad second alternative. Thank you very much, Bankin, for uh, joining us today. It's a pleasure. So there we have it, a brief insight into life as one of the most impressive silks at the bar and the head of a magic circle set of chambers. I hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as I did. 
Thank you for listening to the Fountain Court podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and to listen to some of our other episodes.